This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Sebastiano De Filippi. I'm Stuart Davis. Sebastiano is an Italian-Argentine music director, orchestral conductor, and author. He has never spoken publicly about this experience he'll be sharing. It's a riveting multi-witness event that lasted for hours with quite the intense conclusion. We're so grateful he's recounting it here for the first time. And so, without further delay, here it is. Well, I, I try, first of all, of, to give you a little bit of background history here, because we are talking about a particular place, which is not very well known outside Argentina, at least not up until now, which is a um, particular mountain in the state of Córdoba, which is in, quite in the center of Argentina, of the country. It is not a very, a very high mountain, actually, but it is the, the highest in, in that um, particular range of mountains in Córdoba, which is named Uritorco, Mount Uritorco. It's, it's a place with a long history of strange tales and experiences and mythology. It's a kind of Mount Shasta for Argentina, if you get my meaning. But it's also a combination of Mount Shasta meeting Skinwalker Ranch plus Marfa Lights plus Roswell, perhaps, or Dulce. So it's a kind of, of a classical hotspot down here in South America. I think this is something which is not new. Perhaps it's, it's something that was also, in a way, known by the, the people who inhabited, inhabited the place before the uh, Spanish conquest. We don't have a proof of that, but I think it's quite probable. And this particular place and the city, which is city, it's a town, small town, touristic town, which is uh, nearby the Uritorco is named Capilla del Monte, which means Chapel of the Mount. So it's a religious name. And um, for a number of reasons, I, I got to know the place and its surroundings uh, very early on, uh, when I was a, a teenager or a pre-teenager, I would say, a kid, a small kid, because of family reasons, you know, my my maternal maternal grandmother had uh, remarried uh, to a gentleman who was living nearby. So to make a long story short, I spent many a summer in her house near this particular area. And I got to, to know the stories around Mount Uritorco very, very early on. So it became a bit of an obsession. And uh, I spent almost, only, only considering my adult age, 27 years in field work. And also, of course, library work, but mostly field work in or around Mount Uritorco. So that came to fruition, so to speak, with my writing and publishing three books about in all these phenomena in this hot spot. Books which exist in uh, both Spanish uh, and Italian, 
and uh, were published in Argentina, in Chile, in Spain, and of course in Italy. Not yet in English, that's the uh, bad news for any interested listener. Not yet, I'm hopeful. In a way, I've dealt in writing with this phenomena in this hotspot from, uh, I wouldn't say skeptical, but uh, certainly rational way, serious way, proof-minded way. Because as, as usually in this uh, kind of cases and phenomenology, there are so, so many people which are extremely uh, gullible and in need of easy answers of uh, almost automatic explanations. And there are also a lot of people profiting from this, from our human weakness. So this kind of South American Roswell has become a kind of, you know, Jerusalem temple in which we would need a couple of Jesus to, to just send the, the merchants out. I think in this case, as in many others, uh, the real phenomena gets contaminated and sometimes even obscured, totally obscured, by this kind of, once again, dishonest people taking advantage of persons who are looking for something, whether phenomenon or in a spiritual quest, you know. So in my three books, I mostly deal with this dishonest and or gullible people and their, the thing that they produced. Because when, when the Oritorco and Capitol and Monte got, get into newspapers and, and radio shows and TV shows, it's usually for the wrong reasons. And I'm sure you understand what I mean. All kinds of conjurers and so-called self-appointed gurus, very cheap people taking advantage uh, in terms of money, and, but also power over many, many persons who are traveling to this place in, in search of a, of a kind of contact, either with uh, ET beings or spirituals, spiritual beings, or, or just to connect with them themselves or with Mother Earth, perhaps. And all this is being taken advantage of in a, in a very, uh, very extreme, rude, very uh, unpleasant way. So um, as an author, I try to write from the social sciences and from the humanities point of view, and almost as a journalist, since I, as you well know, I'm essentially a musician and musicologist. But I also have this college background in social sciences and humanities. So it, it is rather natural for me to look at this phenomenon in a very dispassionate way and just try to, you know, uh, bring a little bit of seriousness and a little bit of facts and, and, and light in a very shadowy place, very shadowy place in which, for, for instance, most of the phenomena which are reported and um, in the media are non-existent, are the non-existent ones. And perhaps the real phenomena 
they don't get reported at all. So it's a kind of dichotomy I live with in the sense that in public, I, I usually wear this hat in which I'm a kind of, once again, I wouldn't say skeptic, but very rational and very science conscious person when dealing with this kind of phenomena. But on the other side, as a person, as an individual, I um, had the opportunity to, to witness, to see things which are really uh, not, you know, not easily explainable. Very, very, very strange, very weird phenomena. So once again, I have this like two hats. <laughs> when I um, <laughs> encounter a professional skeptic, I usually draw my personal experiencer weapon and, and, and shoot him uh, and shoot at him with, with it. And when I have in front of me a very, um, a not very well informed person and a very gullible person, I usually put on my scientist hat and try to, and try to rationalize. So it's a kind of double life I live. So once again, I can try to, to tell you whatever you are interested in from both sides of the bridge from the size of, of the, of the uh, material, materialistic person who is uh, really trying to identify lies, deceits, hoaxes, fraud. And indeed, uh, I, I succeeded in that. I was able to, to really debunk very serious claims and to, to show some people for what they really are. And on the other side, I'm the first person to, to be able to tell you that something, something very weird is going on on that particular hotspot. That's beautiful. And I completely accord with the complementarity of what might superficially seem like a paradox or a disparity. On one hand, advocacy for the rational, healthy science discernment. On the other hand, advocacy for experiencers. And the fact that something fundamentally inexplicable is afoot. I love how these are coupled in your life and the refusal on your part to collapse the enigma to one or the other end of the spectrum. Your experience is one of the more unique and remarkable I've heard, and I'll hand the talking stick back to you to relate it in your own terms. Sure, I can try anyway. It was more or less a four hour long experience. So it, it's kind of difficult to try to sum it up into, I don't know, <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes, but I will try. This happened like, uh, if I recall right in January, 2014. So it's already a while ago. You have to know that January in Argentina is in the middle of the summer holidays and very hot. And uh, it's the uh, touristic season in, in this place, in Capitano Monte, for people who likes, like to go to the mountain instead of going to, you know, the sea or whatever. So I, um, I spent a whole week in a cabin nearby Capital Monte, very, very near to, to Mount Uritorco, with a friend and colleague of mine, a teacher, of, a music teacher, 
and a good friend, who I have to say was not aware of almost anything about the uh, phenomena, mythology, tales, stories about this place, which is very interesting in, in the light of what I'm going to tell you. Because at that point, I was well aware of, I mean, I was in the middle of a lifelong research process. So I was really into uh, those kind of stories, but he wasn't. And that's very interesting because we had this four hour long experience together. We saw and experienced the same things, but of course, each of us had his own uh, background and his own knowledge or lack of knowledge about the story circulating in, in the uh, hotspot, so to speak. So, well, it was uh, rather late after dinner, like 10 p.m. You have to be aware that in South America, it's very common to have dinner uh, at 9, 9.30. It's very common to really uh, enjoy the first part of the night. Um, especially in summer, of course, during the summer. So it was it's like like 10 something past 10 p.m. and we were on this um, wooden deck at our cabin, which we, we were renting for the, for the week, in which we had a small pool. And we were just, you know, talking, refreshing ourselves with the water and looking at the sky and just normal conversation between two friends uh, sharing uh, a bit of summer holiday time together. At one point, we saw from the other side of the mountain, huge, a, a huge series of, of uh, flashes, what we would say, no? flash, flash, flash of silver light, like there was a giant on the other side of the mountain with a, a huge uh, a huge uh, photo, photo camera taking pictures. And uh, as the result of that, we, from the other side, from the Western side of the mountain, in which we were located, we were seeing these huge flashes of light, silver light, but really huge. I mean, I never saw something like that. In, we, we never saw something like that before. And these huge flashes of silver light, of which we were aware of the upper part, let's say, the, the, the part that was visible when, when the mountain, you know, when the mount, mountain ended <laughs> upwards, it, it, it also had a kind of rhythm and a kind of movement toward north. The Uritorku is a rather long, long mountain. And, and, and it's, it's kind of physically developed from south to north, you know, if you try to picture this in your mind. So we were in the western southern part uh, of the mountain. So we could see these, those flashes of light like traveling northbound with, once again, a kind of a pulsating rhythm. So one flash and then a second flash a little bit more to the north and then a third flash even more to the north and then a fourth flash and like that for a, at least a dozen times i think always traveling from south to north that is 
getting away from us in a way, and always on the opposite side of the mountain, of this long mountain. This was puzzling enough, as you can well imagine. We, of course, we had, at that point, we didn't have uh, smartphones. We, we did have a, a small digital camera. And we tried to take some pictures, and we did. The thing is, as any of us know, a flash doesn't stop in midair to be portrayed. It, it's, it's just a, perhaps less than half a second, you see the flash and then it disappears. And then of course you have the next flash. So it was impossible to get it on camera, impossible. The camera was not up to the speed needed to really portray one of those flashes. The thing is this continue, it's, it's, it's travel northbound. Up until it, it, it was impossible to, to follow it. I mean, it was, it became invisible because of the, of the way the mountain is shaped and, and the, the place in which we were from which we were observing it. But then just after a few minutes, and here, of course, we have a, a big question mark because we don't know if it was the same phenomenon with different faces as the, you know, the travel direction would indicate, or this was a second phenomenon and there's, and there afterwards we had a third one. We don't know if, if it was the same one with three faces or, or three different phenomena, phenomena. but the, the sure thing is it moved, you know, there was a continuity of movement between this first huge silver flashes of light and what then became a small series of traveling red flashes of light from east, that is from Mount Ritorco, to west, that is going almost, I would say, cross country and, and away from the mountain range. So it became, or, or at least this was our impression, that was the same phenomenon, just changing the way it was acting, a series of small red concentrated light, lights, flashes of lights going from east to west. And there were some hills, very small uh, hills, who, um, let's say, we could see the, once again, the upper part of these flashes, red flashes. But I would say we were, we were seeing like 80% of it, since the, those hills were very low, we were able to see almost the full amount of light and flash. And I'm telling, the, telling, the, telling you this because the, the strange, very strange thing is these flashes of lights, the second, the, the second kind of flashes, they were not behaving like normal flashes in the sense that they developed into um, a very concrete shape, a, ki a kind of crown, if you want, with uh, rounded, with, with spikes, but with each spike rounded up 
like with a circle. The other day, a friend of mine uh, said to me, like coronavirus, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something like that, actually, yes, but it was really <laughs> much, much before we knew about coronavirus. So these flashes, traveling flashes from east to west, small, red and very concentrated, had this amazing quality when they um, they got to their maximum stage of development, they froze for a second of two or two in this uh, perfectly geometrical shape of a kind of sun, you know, or, or crown or whatever. I don't know what, what that was about, really. But to give you an idea, it was like a, a depiction of a, of a sun which a kid could do it in school. But once again, with those spikes, which ended up uh, in, a, in a round way, like, like, like six or seven footballs rounding up each uh, spike. So this was extremely, extremely strange, very weird, very unsettling, much more than the huge flashes of light, actually. And, uh, and this kept traveling from east through west. We also tried to capture this with our camera, and, and we did in a way, but what you can see in the pictures is just a tiny little spot of red light in the distance, which is nothing similar to what we were looking live. I mean, it's just, you see the pictures and, and, and you see, you, you can say, that light could be anything. I mean, a car, a, a light from a house, anything. So it was impossible to capture in the camera what, what both of us were witnessing at the moment. Now, the thing is, this, this uh, series of flashes were traveling towards the national route, the national route, which goes from south to north. That is, it's in, in, you know, in a parallel position in front of the Uritorco. So we were saying, this thing is going to hit the route. Since we are equipped with a 4x4 vehicle, we should try to, try to get it. <laughs> to go for it. Since we were not afraid, actually, at this point, because I would say the reason we were not afraid is because both uh, series of, of lights were very far away, quite far away. It was not something that was, you know, threatening us from a few footsteps. We are talking about no less than, than 10, 15, 20 kilometers. Uh, so we did. We got into the uh, into the car. We drove drove out from the town, and we uh, managed to get the uh, the national route and go northbound, trying to kind of intercept these flashes of uh, red moving light. The thing is, when we reach more or less the the, the spot in which we we thought we were going to have this interception. 
we saw nothing uh, or almost nothing, just a kind of strange luminescence, but something very, very almost natural, like 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 when 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 you are in a in a night with a with a full moon, let's say, in the middle of the of um not not certainly not in, in a city, but in the middle of, of, of a mountain. Yeah. But what we did uh, out of intuition kind of was to turn left to the state route, which goes from west to east, intersects Uritorco and goes through Uritorco to a valley which is called Ongamira. We did that, and as soon as we did that, we encountered, not very far away actually, I would say like 20 meters away, the third manifestation of this phenomenon, or a third phenomenon, if you, if you prefer, we don't know, which was a kind of regularly shaped cloud, extremely regularly shaped. It was oval, you know, which had a kind of um, activity inside it, like gas or liquid or some kind of energy moving around with alternating and mixing a kind of blue liquid with a kind of gray liquid with a kind of whitish liquid or gas or whatever. I mean, there was a lot of activity inside of this perfectly shaped uh, cloud cloud, so to speak, because it wasn't a cloud. I mean, it was not in the sky. It was something like five meters from the ground, from the root. So it was a very, I don't know if it was a solid object, but it was certainly an isolated presence, which was absolutely out of this world. Uh, we had never seen anything like that. Not in person, not in pictures, not in a drawing. And I had, I, I, of course, I have uh, a lot of literature about this kind, this, this kind of phenomenon, but I, I've never read about people encountering a kind of regularly shaped, multicolored sort of cloud. I would say not moving, apparently, just five meters from the ground in the middle of nowhere, because this route is, is surrounded by nothing. I mean, just plants and a bit of woods, and of course, the mountain, and there's nothing there. And this was the beginning of the most um, puzzling part of our experience, because we still not in, not afraid. We decided to pursue it, to, to go, in, in its direction and, and we and we did that we did that and um, at a certain point we we discovered the thing was keeping the same amount of distance from us as we drove I mean so it kept like a 15 meters distance no matter how fast or how slowly we were driving it would adjust its position and its speed 
to be always this far away ahead of us. So we went on and on and on for, I don't know, no less than half an hour. Actually, up until we were almost to the point of crossing the Uritorco towards that valley of Ongamira, which we decided we, we were not going to do because after three hours of observing these lights and after one hour and a half of being on the, uh, on the car, we knew that we could not just, you know, uh, pursue lights up until four in the morning in the middle of a deserted valley with no cell signal, no phone signal, no, no, no towns, no houses. We would have uh, run out of gas and uh, be just stranded there up until the other day. I mean, the other morning when some car would have passed through and just help us out. So we knew at that point we had, we had to stop. We could stay uh, at that at that very secluded place for a while, and actually we did. But then we knew we had to just turn back and, and go back to our cabin. So at this point, we, we stopped the car, we, we, we left it, and uh, we approached a couple of steps. And the thing was there, just there with all that internal colorful activity I was telling you about. So kind of 15 meters from us and kind of five meters from the ground. And uh, we were just staring at it and you could perhaps imagine or, or sense that it was staring at us. Uh, well, this is when uh, things got interesting <laughs> because my friend um my friend just began to shout shout to it in anger because uh he felt that after almost three hours of pursuit uh he deserved to see more to see better and so he started to shout in a very unpolite manner to this kind of cloud luminous cloud by the way and um, demanding that uh, these people, so to speak, show themselves. And uh, saying, you know, I'm not afraid of you, I'm a grown-up man. I think he said something like, in French, you would say, I have big balls. <laughs> so he was really angry and frustrated and was shouting at <laughs> this thing. And I told him, you know, my friend, I wouldn't do that <laughs> because perhaps I don't know. Perhaps you 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 only saw Spielberg's movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and you think this is a kind of extraterrestrial ship manned by um, very sympathetic and friendly ETs, and that's fine. But the uh, the reality is we don't we don't have a clue what this is about. We really don't know. We don't know anything about this we are here staring at. So in, we're in doubt, you know, use caution. <laughs> I told him that and he kind of understood and stopped his shouting and unpolite 
communication. He tried to, you know, activate the lights of the uh, car and play some games with a with an electric torch we had, um, but no, no, no communication of that kind uh, resulted. There was no like no response to our um, playing with lights. Now, the interesting thing is after a few minutes of just being there and staring at it, at it uh, in complete silence, there was, there were no, 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 no people, no animals, no clouds, nothing in the middle of, of nowhere. And uh, all of a sudden, my friend who was behaving in a rather natural, normal way up until then, he had a kind of panic attack and he almost collapsed collapsed in, in panic. He was white, his, his face was white as a paper. And the, the, the few, the little hair he had uh, went up and he got goosebumps and uh, he started um, to, you know, tremble, trembling incontrollably to shake. And, uh, and began to, to tell me, in, began to, to, to tell me that we, we had to leave in a very agitated way. He, he probably had, you know, a heart ratio, which was very, uh, very much higher than normal, like palpitations. He was, he was very, very, very upset, very afraid, very, very nervous. And he, he told me several times that we had to leave that place uh, at all, um, immediately. So I tried to, to calm him down, which was quite difficult. First of all, because he was in panic, and then because he didn't want to explain what uh, had triggered his reaction. He told me, no, no, you will think I'm crazy. Of course, I told him, no, I, I won't think that of you. You can, you can confide in me. There's no problem. Well, the thing is, he told me that um, he has just heard four chords sung by a chorus. He was, a, he is a music teacher, mind you, again. So he was, he, he knew exactly what he was talking about. I mean, he was also able to sing the upper voice of these four chords. Once again, sang by a chorus way in the distance. There's no need to clarify or, or perhaps, yes, there was nothing around this place. Just to think that there was a chorus, a choir there singing is just, it's much more crazier than, than thinking of about extraterrestrials and, and airships and spaceships. Now, the interesting thing is, he was the only one to, to hear this. I didn't hear a thing. First, first interesting point. Second interesting point. I knew for long experience in the field of many, many witnesses saying that when they went up to the mountain to do the rituals and the, and the contact ceremonies of Angel Cristo Coglanis, they heard as something like a chorus singing in the distance. So this is extremely puzzling and interesting and, and, and meaningful, meaningful because this thing kind of scared my friend through something that was 
perceptible only to him. But then he wasn't aware of these stories of choral voices in the middle of nowhere, but I was aware of them. So with a single, um, with a single, I don't know how to, how to put it, with just one small act, this thing got a kind of revenge on my friend because he was not polite. He demonstra it demonstrated that it could feed him some auditory information without me knowing that. And third and most important, this thing validated through a person who was not aware of these stories about choral voices, it validated to me those stories I knew. So that was a very powerful moment, an extremely powerful moment, because I realized and I, I came to a conclusion, which is by the way, the only conclusion I have up until today, because I don't know what that was. And I doubt I would ever know. But I do, I do know, as I knew then, that this was, this had volition, this had will, this has, this had intelligence. I don't know if this thing was a subject, it was a being, I don't know. But if it is, if it was not something alive, it was, it was, you know, um, controlled by something which was sentient and had volition and had intelligence and was communicating in a very, in a way, convoluted way. Of almost, if you if you think about it, it's almost it was almost a, a mafia message, <laughs> but very effective, extremely effective. It was very effective for my friend to be very afraid and it was extremely extremely useful for me to understand that this thing was intelligent and that this thing knew that i knew about the choral voices and so this kind of mediated experience of my friend would be a kind of double confirmation a double validation for me and it was this is spooky it's really really I wouldn't say scary, but, but, but a bit spooky. Well, in the end, I didn't, I didn't explain this to my friend at that point, because I knew he was already afraid. If I told him that I knew about the choral voices, he would have perhaps, I don't know, collapse. So I didn't. I, wait, I waited up until the next day to tell him about it. After a, a few minutes of uh, further observation, mutual observation, I guess, then the last thing happened, which is that I felt a sudden current, a sudden charge of fear. In my case, it was not panic. It was not uncontrollable, perhaps because it was not the intention of this thing was not so strong. Perhaps also because I am a very, very cold-minded person when in danger. I was 
at least twice in my life, one second away from dying, uh, dying a, a rather, uh, a rather um, violent uh, death. I know from those two moments in my life that if I can keep, as I did, my cool when dying, almost dying, I can certainly keep my cool when something like this happens. So I was not in panic. There was nothing to trigger it. I was just, there was just like a shot of not AstraZeneca or Pfizer, but a shot of fear with no apparent reason. So I didn't panic, but I did understood the, the message. This thing was kind of telling me also, it's about time we, we end this, this lovely meeting. <laughs> I, I had the idea, um, this is very personal, very subjective. I, had, I was under the impression that this thing was, was bored with us and, and a little bit disappointed. And since it was past midnight, we decided to call it a night. So we, we took up again our vehicle and we drove back uh, an hour or so up until we, we reached our cabin. And so that, that was, um, I think this is the, the best way I can try to sum up this four hour experience. Four hour, let's say from the, the first flash, silver flash we saw up until we, we uh, abandoned this, this cloud and, uh, and got back to the town. That would be it, I guess. Questions. I have some. Beginning with the turn left where your trajectory switched from south to north over to east-west. Yes, to yeah. west-east. From west to east, to east. Okay, yes, from west to east. And you felt that term was intuitive. These years later, do you still feel that was random or intuitive or possibly that the nature of this intelligence guided or directed that choice in any way? It was absolutely rational because the only way to somehow approach the lights, the flashes we had just saw was to go east. And the only way to go east was to turn left at that point. Mm -hmm. With a vehicle, the only, the only way to get to an approximate position in which the, the red flashes were um, showing themselves was to go that way. So it was quite logical. And that's why I was telling you that we don't know if it was three phenomena or just one phenomenon with three faces. But there was a logic in, the, um, in its movement. I mean, it began, uh, it began in, a, in, a, in, a, in the eastern part of the mountain, the, the, which is invisible for us. It was towards north, and then it turned towards west. And then it didn't uh, reach, apparently, the route, because we didn't see that but we could turn east and try to approximate the place in which we last saw the last red flash. And that it was what we did, as simple as that. This is conjecture, just asking you to speculate from the gut. Do you feel this was three distinct phenomena or was there an organizing principle, three faces on one phenomenon, as you say? 
yeah, in my mind, it, it was the, the the same phenomenon, or at least, uh, I mean, it came from the same source. And what was that ride home like? Did you speak? What became of this friendship? You know, it's it's a very interesting question because um, I'm still very good friend to this 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 person because, as you all know. Um, with this strange phenomenon, but also in life in general, each and everybody of us copes as he can. <laughs> the way he has been taught, the way he has been raised, the way uh, he has become through reading and, and life experiences. So my friend was, and, is, and this is very, it's really to be expected, was desperate to find an answer an explanation. If a skeptical and rational one, that would be the ideal. And if not, someone to tell him it was ETs and UFOs. But he had, he had this, this very human thing of wanting to, to get peace of mind by embracing an answer, an explanation no matter which explanation of and, and 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 not caring really if the explanation is right or not this is very human and it's it, i mean it, it affects all of us and we see this each and every day of our life in all the fields of existence you can imagine but that's not me i'm uh, extremely rational also in my metaphysical musings, I'm extremely rational. So, and I don't have a problem with uncertainty, uh, with ignorance and with not knowing. Actually, I'm all, almost, I would say, proud of being a big ignoramus because I prefer not to know and tell people that I do not know and I do not understand that just embrace easy solutions, easy explanations, easy theories, which at the end of the day, you cannot be sure they're right. Actually, most of the time you have not a hint of, of you know, evidence or proof or... So I prefer to say, look, I, I went through this, this is up to this day, completely unexplainable. I may have my, you know, intuitions, ideas, personal ideas, but I would never impose them to other people because I don't have any kind of proof. I only have my intuition and I check that if my intuition gives me something which has a certain internal coherence. If my intuition serves me with something which with an idea which has a certain internal coherence, well, that's an interesting starting point. But once again, I won't embrace it uh, like one embraces religion. I will never do that. So up to this point, up to this very day, I don't know. And actually, I'm coming to, as I keep studying and reading and doing research and investigating and talking with very interested in the interesting individuals about these kind of things. I'm coming to terms uh, with a, a kind of 
belief that we are not built with the cognitive capacity to fully understand these things. We barely have what it takes to witness some of the things. Which is to me, if you allow me for a quick philosophical <laughs> explore, I think this is the very nature of our species. We are in a very sad and ironic position as in, you know, we belong in the upper echelon of mammals. But we are the only ones to be able to theorize about things we don't know and don't understand. And we also are able to say, here it is something that I don't understand, which the other mammals, as far as we know, they cannot do this. But yet we have this um, advantage if, if, if compared to mammals, but we are, we are not equipped enough to go further. We can only speculate and have a bit of a taste of this kind of alternative parallel reality. But we are in a middle ground. We lack what may be an upper echelon, an upper realm of intelligent life may have. We don't have that. And then we have a little bit more than the superior mammals have. It's a very sad and ironic position. And we call ourselves Homo sapiens sapiens. That is the hominid who knows and who knows that knows, which is, I think, very a very precarious position. <laughs> very, <laughs> I wouldn't call myself sapiens sapiens. I will call myself Homo incipiens, incipiens, the man that, that doesn't know and perhaps even doesn't know that he doesn't know. So no, I, I really don't have, uh, I can only tell, tell what I saw, but I, I make no judgment of it because I don't have, the more I read, the, 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 the less I understand in a way, in a way. But that's also understanding up to a point, right? I mean, if you come slowly to the conclusion that you are not equipped, I don't mean as an individual, also as a species, you are not equipped to understand it really. Uh, then, well, you have just to live with that experience and knowing that some of the other experience you, experiences you might hear of may be also very real, as of course, many of them are not which I also discovered in this 27 years of field research. But some of them are like this one. Of course, I, can, I cannot prove it to anyone. And of course, I don't care to. <laughs> Actually, I don't usually tell this story at all. Because I think one of the main uh, features of this phenomena, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's one of their its main, its main features is that they, they do not like to be captured in sound recordings or pictures or film footage in a very clear way. They don't like that. Or it doesn't like that. It usually doesn't happen. And I'm starting to believe it's something which has to be with the way the phenomenon works. One of the things I'm coming to 
to believe about the phenomenon is this. It is always wearing uh, a mask and sometimes several masks. Actually, uh, I'm reminded of Joseph Campbell's hero of, of a thousand faces. Well, I think this phenomenon has a thousand faces. Yeah. And we may provide most or perhaps all of those faces. I mean, it, it uh, builds up its masks from what it finds inside of us. That is the idea I'm toying with lately. Which perhaps is not, not very new because as you go back to your library, you will find that uh, someone like Jacques Vallée thinks something quite similar. Perhaps not exactly what I'm saying, but in the line of what I'm thinking. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Sebastiano. How badass is this cat? His musical biography is longer than your double-jointed arm. He speaks English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, reads Russian, Hebrew, Latin, Greek. (laughs) Check out his website by clicking the link in the show notes, and I will also put links to his books in there in case you are a polyglot who can read those in the languages they're printed in. How do you hear part two? You become a patron or a pluser who receive a courtside box at Wimbledon. Yes, it's the Queen's box. For minus listeners, the Queen's box is all locks. Patrons and plusers are spoiled with an unsoiled royal box. Minus listeners get defective disposal receptacles for medical needles. Hey, catch! Patrons and plusers get dinosaur feathers encased in fossilized resin. Minus listeners get resin. Patrons and plusers own the trademark to the smell of fresh strawberries. Minusers have their likeness at the height of puberty carved in butter and placed on the buffet at Red Lobster. Patrons and plusers get sugar gliders that cling to their phalanges like mittens. What are you minusing for? You're a natural born pluser. Click the link in the show notes and pop your opulent top. Spirituality and religion. I've misunderstood both of them, so I'm here now to help you overstand each of them. Maybe you're thinking of trading one for the other. The god is always greener on the other side, right? That depends on whether or not it's true. Personally, it's taken a lot of soul-searching to become clear enough to not misconstrue my own confusion. And that's what I'm here to disclaim. Spirituality and Religion The Left and Right Testicles of the Holy Scrotum Reach between your metaphysical legs and fondle them. What's that? One of them has a cancerous nodule. Before you cut that nut, you'd better find out which is which and what is what. For instance, if it's from your culture, it's religious. If it's from some far-off culture in a distant land, it's spiritual. Prayer is religious, but Tibetan prayer flags are spiritual. I mean, just look at those things. Prayer flags are handcrafted 
by poor people in a third world country. They're written in some ancient language, I have no idea what it means, which means it's incredibly profound. Why else would God put it in a different tongue? And it's not just objects that are either spiritual or religious, but situations too. Like singing hymns in church is religious, but doing shrooms in an ashram is spiritual. Some things just need a little tweak in order to become spiritual. Hand job in a massage parlor, sinful. While burning incense, spiritual. That's because sex is a religious taboo, but sensuality is a spiritual toboggan. Climb on and speed down the lubed up slopes of human anatomy. Listen, man, if there's one thing I've learned from spiritual teachers, it's that I don't have to learn anything religious. I have to unlearn religious conditioning. I'm already spirit, I just gotta stop not experiencing it. Just witness your breathing. Say you're robbing a bank. Just follow your breath with your awareness, and you'll notice that the self is an illusion. So you're not committing an armed robbery. One is just arising in the moment. You start doing these little practices and you're gonna be so fucking spiritual. Like even that, when a religious person says fuck, they're cursing. When I say it, I'm evolving because I've unlearned that word. To me, that signifier could signify anything. When I say fuck, I'm signifying love because I fuck you, but also, I mean vaginal penetration. This is semantics, by the way, and it's the ejection seat of religious arguments. Telling religion and spirituality apart is not rocket science. Everything is spirit, so anything can be spiritual. Except rocket science, because that's weaponry and wars are religious. Mark my words, one day spirituality will wipe the violent religions off the face of this earth. Why? Because religion is full of sex abuse and hoarding money and making people conform. And spirituality is about abusing sex and losing money and making people confused. It's simplicated. Religion is polyester, spirituality is silk. Mormon underwear is religious, edible underwear is spiritual, when Gwyneth Paltrow wears it. Religious figures get charged for having sex with their students, and spiritual figures charge their students for sex. Don't get me wrong, okay? Religion and spirituality are not always exclusive. Some religious people are spiritual too. They're called heretics. In the words of one of my favorite heretics, Zen Master Ikkyu, quote, her mouth played with my cock the way the clouds play with the sky." End quote. That's how a religious nut has a spiritual awakening. That's true. To book one-on-one -on -one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, click the link in the show notes. Sessions include anomalous experiences, past life regression, and creativity as a spiritual path. And check out the Experiencer Group, a private membership site for experiencers of phenomena from mediumship, precognition, contact with non-human entities, and much more. TheExperiencerGroup.com or click the link in the show notes.
So 